When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Good morning, Charged Up Studio listeners. Welcome back to another episode where you get charged up for success. I'm Dana Olivo, your host and CEO of Marketatomy LLC. Today, we've got a very special guest who is going to help you protect your hard-earned intellectual property. Today's guest loves to work with startups and micro business owners. He founded his first startup while earning his law degree and MBA. He runs his own patent and trademark law firm and has secured hundreds of patents and trademarks to help small businesses protect their inventions and brands. So let's please welcome to Charged Up Studio, Mr. Devin Miller with Miller IP Law. Well, thank you for having me on. That was a great introduction. I don't know if I warrant such a good introduction, but thanks for having me on. Hey, look, you know, we all we all warrant our titles when we work for them, so... <laughs> That's you know, true. I love the, the sign right there that says helping startups and small businesses. That's perfect. <laughs> well, thank you. Now, this is this is a very interesting topic because I um, Market Atomy has a lot of content and we're constantly trying to protect it, you know, and keep it and keep it uh, out of the hands of scrupulous individuals. So. <laughs> so you're the perfect person to talk about this. So this, Absolutely. yes. So this is a very interesting topic that not only that not all business owners take into consideration. You know, ultimately, many times we find that they find themselves taken advantage of, especially when dealing in a virtual environment where face-to-face contact is not always feasible. Okay. So to start off with, first of all, let's talk about what is the difference between a patent. A trademark and a copyright. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. So I would just take one step beyond just if people hear the word intellectual property, it's an umbrella term that includes patents, trademarks, copyrights. So sometimes people can use they hear intellectual property and they don't know what that means. And it's really just saying, hey, you got these three terms, they all are incorporated into intellectual property. Okay. Well, with that, so now patents are really anything that's associated with an invention. So anything that does something that has a utility nature to it. So it could be software, hardware, electronics. It can be mechanical in nature. It can be chemicals. It can be pharmaceuticals. But anything that kind of does something that has a, an inventive nature to it. Trademarks are going to be more for branding. So if you're to think of a name of a company, a name of a product, a logo, a catchphrase, anything that's kind of built into your branding that's for um, branding purposes, that's going to be trademarks. 
The last one on copyrights is going to be more for creative or something that's creative in nature. So if you think of a book, a painting, a sculpture, a movie, a television show, a podcast, anything that's kind of on that creative side, it, it can fall under copyrights. And so when you're looking at those, you kind of got here, you can keep those straight, then looking at what your business does or where the value is, it'll determine kind of what protections that may be available and what you should look into. Okay. So say, for instance, I have a um, assessment platform that I have designed and my programmer is developing. That would fall under a patent, right? Right. Yep. Well, at least the program itself would fall under a patent. You had a brand around it, name of the product or, you, you know, catchy phrase for the assessment, then that name would fall under trademarks. But yeah, as far as the actual product would fall under a patent. Okay. Okay. So what is the... what? What for my listeners, what's an average cost of say a patent or a trademark? Yeah, and break and it does vary. I'll give you kind of the average. You know, you can go to yep. the Silicon Valley firms and they're gonna be kind of or, or New York firms and they're gonna be kind of the top of the mark. You can also go to cut rate firms that don't do a good job but are very expensive and they're bottom of the mark. But if you're to look at a patent application, I'd break that into when you're doing a patent application, you kind of have two options. One is called a provisional patent application. The other one's called a non-provisional. So breaking them down what each of those mean. A provisional is kind of a application that's saying, hey, I want, I think I have something that's worthwhile to pursue. I want to get a one-year placeholder protection while I go out in the marketplace, see if it's acceptable, see if it, you know, people will purchase it. Or I'm, hey, I'm still doing a lot of R&D and I want to protect what I've done right now, but the product's not finished, but I'm nervous that I'm going to go out and start selling it or exposing it or showing it to other people. So I want to have that. So a provisional patent application is kind of set in place for that, giving you that one year, one year placeholder that allows you to take the, or get some protection and then take the time to decide whether or not a full patent application makes sense. So that cost is going for a provisional, the one year placeholder you're looking at you're going to go to a cut rate ones that I wouldn't recommend your, you know, thousand dollars. If you're to go to a new, uh, new York or California Silicon Valley firm, you're probably 3000 to 3,500. If you're to take the average, you're somewhere between 2000 to 2,500. Okay. Okay. And a trademark. And so, Oh, sorry. Let me just give the other half of the question and then yeah. I'll jump to trademark, which is a non-provisional. That would be a full patent application. That's saying, Hey, I don't want a placeholder. Just want to jump into the process. If you're looking to file a trademark, it's usually low end, you're 4,500, top end can be 10,000, average, you're probably seven to 8,000, somewhere in there. That's to file it. If you were to say all the way through the process, and so after you file it, go through examination, look at patentability, you're somewhere on average, if you're at a reasonable firm, 11 to 12,000 to get through the full process. Of, of patenting. Yeah, for a full patent. So okay. non, non-provisional, full patent application goes through, they look at it, say, yep, it's patentable. It's now issued as a patent. And that's kind of the price you're looking at. Now, if you get a non-provisional one, okay, mm-hmm. is there a time limit on that before you So, So not a provisional is the one-year placeholder. Non-provisional, that one is you file it, you go through the examination process, the examiner of the patent office will say, yep, it's patentable or no, it's not. You have some back and forth. You can argue or adjust it. Assuming that they issue it and, you know, you get an issued patent, um, then it's 20 years from the day that you originally filed a non-provisional. So it's a, it's a total of 20 years from when you file it. So oh, I meant to say a provisional patent. Is there a time limit on that, that you can have a provisional patent? 
So the provisional is one year. So when you file it, you have one year basically to decide whether or not I want to go for the full patent or whether I want to let this go abandoned. So it is that one year time frame for the, the provisional. Okay. Okay. So now I can jump over to trademarks, which is kind yeah, of the, the second question. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. So trademarks are less expensive. And so you're looking at, if you're to say, to file a trademark application, you're looking at backing up, let me add, or give a little bit of preface. Way trademarks work is when you file them, you have to indicate the goods and services you want. So in other words, if you're to think of Nike, Nike has, I'm sure, a whole bunch of trademarks. But if you're thinking really that Nike is doing athletic or sports gear and apparel, they don't do automobiles. And so when they file their trademarks, they're filing it into the categories of athletic wear, sports gear, and apparel. So for each category you file it into, there's a governmental fee that you have to pay. In other words, they're saying, hey, we have to look in this category, see if there's any similar trademark. Then we have to look in this category, see if there's any similar trademarks. So with that, um, if you have more categories, the cost tends to go up because there's more governmental fees. An average trademark, if you're saying, you know, if you had one category and you're saying, I really just have one product or one service I'm doing that will be in one category, you're going to say on the low end, if you're to go to, you know, kind of the cut rate, again, I don't recommend six to 700. The high end, I've seen upwards of 2000, which I think is overpriced and average is somewhere probably between eight to 800 to a thousand dollars. Okay. So um, on the trademark side, all right. Um, I forgot completely what I was going to say. Sorry about that. <laughs> You're good. Um, let's let's move to copyright. Maybe I'll come back to trademark. Okay, copywriting. Okay. Yeah. So copyrights are going to be your least expensive up now. You only it's only if you fit into that category. In other words, if you're making an invention and you have a brand, don't go get a copyright. It's not going to get you any good. But if you're doing a sculpture, painting, writing a book, doing a movie, anything of that, then you, you, you can protect it. Copyrights, you know, they range, cutthroat would be 150, expensive firm, six, $700, and your average is usually three to 400 to, to file a copyright. Okay, so with that being said, you know, when we're talking about copywriting, you're, you're generally copywriting, you know, written material, you know, things like that, right? So let's yeah, go ahead. So let's say you have a course, you have several courses. Okay. Mm -hmm. Do you have to copyright every one of those courses? Or it's my understanding that um that proof of proof of the course or whatever it is um stands stands up in court sometimes as far as you can show a history of. Yes, to a degree. And I'll, I'll, answer, I'll give you, I would still recommend, I'll caveat with, I would still recommend getting or registering the copyright, but I'll give you a kind of, there is a, as opposed to patents and trademarks where they're really to, to get, establish your rights to it, you need to register them. Copyrights, you do have some inherent use. In other words, once you create it, so once you take the photo, once you create the content, once you write the book, whatever it is, you have inherent rights of saying you establish your rights to that copyright. You don't have to register it. Now, you don't have to register. It doesn't mean you shouldn't register it in the sense that the re main reasons why you registered are kind of twofold. So one reason is, is, you know, let's say you, you write the world's best book and you did it on old fashioned or you did it on a typewriter or you did it on your computer, but you lost a file. 
it's going to be hard. It can be hard to establish when you created that, or let's say it's a photo or, you know, whatever it might be. Then to say, yeah, I created this. And you get into a fight with someone else says, no, I created it. You have to establish who created it first. And so, and, and that you created it yourself. And so one of the nice things with copyright registrations, you can say, Hey, I filed it. I can show by this date, I created it. The date isn't uncertain and there isn't any argument over that makes it a lot more clear cut. The other thing is, is if, if you ever get into copyright enforcement, in other words, somebody goes and right clicks on your uh, on your website, they steal your perfect picture, they put it on their picture because it's as easy as a right click, save as, and then uploading right. it. Then if you're going to enforce it, you really need to get any damages or to really make it enforceable, it has to be registered. So a lot of times, yes, you have those inherent rights. You have some ability to go after damages or, red, or to go after them, but it really hampers the ability to enforce it if it's not registered. So Usually where I would split it is, hey, if this is just, you know, you have a lot of material, you don't want to copyright every single thing that you ever create, every blog post or every picture, then you probably rely on your, just your common law rights. And if you have to go and enforce it, go register at that point. But if you're doing, on the other hand, let's say you have the perfect picture and everybody's downloading it, everybody wants the licensing it, and your business is, I take photos, they, they, you know, they license them, and then they use them on their website, then you're going to want to copyright that because you're in the business of licensing it or otherwise getting revenue for it. So it kind of depends on when you have that copyrighted material, if it's just kind of your own internal use, and hey, if somebody were to copy it or somebody were to use it, yeah, I wouldn't be happy with it, but I'm probably not going to go enforce it versus, hey, no, I, I spent millions of dollars to write this book or to do this movie or this perfect pity picture is one that everybody wants to use. Then you're going to want to or go more towards a copyright route. Okay. Now, what about putting the disclaimer on your um, copyright material? You know, does that help at all? It helps in the sense that people, that they can't say that they didn't know that this was copyrighted material. So it's not required. You don't have to put it by creating it. You have those rights. But if you were to ever get into kind of enforcement or get into court or otherwise go after them, it removes the ability for them to say, hey, I just thought this was uncopyrighted or it was free to use or anything else because you have that notice there. So it's not required. But if it's an if it's material that you want to give them notice and you want to make sure it's protected, it's beneficial to have it there. Okay. Okay. What if what if I'm in a position where I can't afford the to, to pay the protection? Okay. But I need to continue working and I need to continue with my, you know, what happens then? Then you continue working. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, it, it is, especially if you're a startup, small business, micro business, and you're saying, hey, I've always got more things to spend money on than money to spend. And is it, do I do payroll? Do I do inventory? Do I do marketing and sales? Do I do legal stuff? And there's, you know, multiple things are demanding your, uh, demanding your costs, then you're going to have to, first of all, if you don't have a business, the legal stuff doesn't help you at all. So, you know, you want to make sure you actually have a business that's going to make money, but assuming you you do have some income or some revenue that you're generating, and now you're saying, I've got these demands, I would take a step back and say, you know, where is the, where is the core of your business? And if it is the core of your business is in relationships, if the core of your business is we just have a great marketing team that out, you know, outperforms everybody else. If the core of your business is we just provide a high level of customer service, none of those need to be protected and you can continue on with your business. Now, on the other hand, if you say, no, the core of our business, what really makes us different is we have a great brand. Everybody loves our brand. They know about our brand. 
you're going to want to get a trademark because if, if you don't have it and somebody else knocks off or copies that trademark or that brand, now you've got a problem of it or, or harming your business. The same thing if you're saying, I'm going to create the world's next best widget, the next best iPhone, and it, we're going to take millions of dollars, years of R&D, lots of engineers and software developers, then you're going to want to make sure that you have it protected because you're investing a lot. So I think that you know whether or not if you're a startup or a small business, look at the core of your business. First of all, make sure you have a viable business that stays in business, but then assuming it is, then you're going to step back and say, where's the core of our business? Where's our value? And then does that need to be protected? The other thing that I'll, I'll just, I'll hit on is, you know, I've done, so as you kind of mentioned the intro, I've done tons of startups and small businesses. That's my passion. My love on the one side, and I love doing the legal on the other. So it's kind of a, a, a marriage of both of those together. And so one of the things that, you know, at least for my firm that we've also created is a slew of, DIY or legal products. In other words, it's not as good as an attorney. If you can hire an attorney, I still highly recommend it because they have the expertise. But I also get that a lot of startups and small businesses can't always afford an attorney rate. Even if it's an affordable attorney, it's still outside of theirs. And so in that case, I would say, whether it's our products, which I think are awesome and great and definitely should use, or somebody else's, at least get something in place, which is better than nothing. And it may not be as good as an attorney, but as you continue to progress, as you evolve as a company and mature, then you go through and you start to say, okay, we need to get these in better condition. We need to go to an attorney. But if you're starting out and you don't have that fund, then get something in place that is certainly better protection than just start going naked. Right, right. Okay, okay. So is it really worth getting the patent or trademark or copyright if there are large competitors out there that just can outspend you. Yeah, and I, I think that's an absolutely fair point. Um, answers with every attorney you'll have, it depends. But I'll give you a bit, bit better answer than it depends. So with that, you know, a couple of things. So let's say you have a really great, whether it's a patent or a really great, you know, product or a really great band, brand that you've established. And to your point, you know, there's the Apples and the Amazons and the Nikes and the Fords of the world that have a lot more money that can outspend you. There's, there are things that, that you can do as a small business that I, I think still warrant the investment that are, are worthwhile. One is, is that you can continue to outpace them. In other words, if you're in technology, yes, that they can do it. But if you're nimble, you know, most of those bigger companies, they have a decision by committee. It takes a long time to do it. And so you can keep ahead of them. Now, that's not necessarily intellectual property, but as a general rule, small businesses are going to be more innovative. They're going to create more and they're going to move better with the market than a large business a lot of the times. Uh But if you get a patent or a trademark, one of the things that you can do is, you know, every competitor, every business has a competitor. Apple has some Samsung, Ford Mm -hmm. has Chevy, Pepsi has Coke, you know, whatever, you you know, Mars has, you know, Milky, you know, or or Mars has um, Hershey and all of those, every big business has a competitor. And if you can establish your, uh, you know, your brand, your, or or your invention, and it has value and such that somebody is wanting to knock it off, go to the competitor and say, Hey, we have a great brand and look, or we have a great invention. Look, Nike is knocking it off and you're Adidas and you want to have a competitive advantage and you want to be able to dominate the marketplace acquire us, purchase us, or license them from us, and you have the wherewithal to do that. Another option, if you're facing a big one, is you can do, you know, they get a bad, and some of it well-deserved, but a bad reputation in the legal industry, which are called patent trolls or sometimes trademark trolls. Basically, these are com- these are companies that they're in the business of enforcing. In other words, they're going to take the intellectual property of our small businesses, and they're going to be in the business of going and taking on, they have the wherewithal, they go and take on these big, 
companies and say, hey, you are infringing. We have the wherewithal. We're enforcing on these rights. And they're usually going to take either a license. They're going to take a cut of the profits or they're going to otherwise, you know, make an arrangement. But that's another option. The last option, and then I'll take a pause, is, you know, you can always just because you can't enforce it today doesn't mean you can't enforce it and in, in, at some point later on. In other words, let's say you get a patent and it is the world's best patent for the world's best invention, but you're a startup and small business and someone knocks it off, but you're still profitable. You'll, you're still growing. You're still making a revenue and an income. And yeah, today we can't take them on. We only have a few hundred thousand dollars in revenue, but in five years, we may have a few million dollars in revenue. And then it changes the paradigm of now we can go and enforce it and it is worthwhile to go after them. So it's also sometimes a matter of timing that you have to be a bit patient as you're building the business and getting the strength to, uh, to be able to defend what you're doing. Okay. Okay. So getting back to, if you don't have the money right now, you know, that type deal. Um, mm -hmm. I've heard that you can mail yourself a certified letter. <laughs> no, stop right there. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> so it is a myth that is one of those myths that circulates around the internet that if you Google it long enough, it'll probably pop up. There is no truth to it, no value to it. And so if you, if that's, I guess if you're doing absolutely nothing and you want to mail yourself a letter, sure, go ahead. You know, maybe this much better than not doing anything, but it's about worth about this, uh, the money you pay for the stamp and in the, and I'll give you my guess as to where that came along. So in patents, but, but prior to 2013, the U.S. was a first to invent or in, invent country. The rest of the world is the first to file country, meaning the rest of the world, whoever files the patent first is a presumptive inventor and they get the rights to it. U.S. until 2013 was a first to invent, meaning if you could prove that you're the first one to invent it, even if you filed later, you still have a path to get the patent on it. And so a lot of times that kind of, now it wasn't a good founded myth, it still was a myth, but the genesis was it was something along the lines of, well, to prove that you're the first invention you came up with it, get a, you know, a envelope, get it certified and it's stamped and you mail it to yourself and you, and you can show the date that you received it to yourself and that shows the date that you in, and created it. Now, in reality, it's not that hard to do something similar to that, to rip it off or to otherwise misrepresent it. And so it didn't have a lot of value, but it kind of got in that. Well, we're in first to invent company or country. So if we mail, if I mail the patent to myself, then it'll be fine. Any value that that had, which was very minuscule in the first place, was destroyed in 2013 when we moved to first to file. So even if you mailed it to yourself and you could show that you're the first to, or you created at this date, if somebody else files on it first, you're still out of luck. And so it doesn't really have any value. Trademarks has no trademarks and copyrights have no foundation. It started as copyrights, and then depending on the myth that you read online, it's oh, you can mail yourself something for trademarks or copyrights or patents. It doesn't do you any good, and I'd probably save the cost of a stamp because it's not worth it. Um, what about on a trademark? You know, such as a logo, a brand, or you know, or something like that, and you haven't been able to actually trademark it yet, but you've been using it for you know, a good five years, 10 years or whatever. And, um, and, and it's all over the place. Mm -hmm. All right. You've got proof there that you've been doing it. All of a sudden somebody comes out and, you know, says, no, that's, they, they file under the same name, same category, everything. Sure. What are you, what is your legal standing on something like that? So Caveating with your best to be the first one to file. You always are in the better position to fight it if you're the one that registered it first. 
just gives you some presumption and validity, presumption of trademarkability. Now, right. to your point, you're saying, okay, that being the case, I didn't do it. So I, you know, I built a business. I've got a great reputation. I've been doing it for 10 years. Somebody else comes along, registers at first, and now they're coming and trying to get me to stop to use the mark. Well, you do have a limited amount of rights within trademarks that you can continue to, if you're the first user, you can continue to use it in the geographic location that you are currently in. So let's give an example. Let's say you started the a really great pizza place and you did it in Chicago, Chicago style pizza, and you have a great brand and everybody in Chicago loves it. And so you've been doing it for 10 years. At the end of the 10 years, you're saying, you know, we've proven it out and I want to go franchise it or I want to start it in other locations. And so now you're saying, I want to expand. But during those 10 years, somebody else took your same brand and they registered it federally. Now, when you're now, what you can do is you could because you were the first to use it in Chicago, you can continue to use it in Chicago. The person that registered it can't come use it in Chicago, but they get it everywhere else in the United States except for Chicago. And so, you where you're using the mark specifically, where your customers are, and where you're using it, you can continue to establish those rights, but you can never expand. So you can't sell it in other places, you can't license it, you can't franchise, and so it gives you some very limited rights, but they are very limited. What if it's a virtual and, and, and it's used across the United States? Then you then it starts to get harder. So, you know, then you have to establish where are your clientele. In other words, let's say you sold something on, you know, on your website and it's really all of your clientele is in California and Washington, D.C. And I'm making it up. Then you're saying, well, I probably have California, and Washington, D.C. Now, the other side is going to say, well, what parts of California? California is a big state. It's, have you sold to every county in California or are you selling all of your products to Los Angeles and Washington, D.C.? Then you have to start to show where your actual clients are. It's not just enough that it's online and everybody can access it. You have to actually show where you're selling it and establishing. So if you can legitimately show, hey, I've sold in every state and in every county and every location, then you probably have reasonable protection. That's going to be in a lot more work to establish, to show that and establish it than it is to just register the trademark and then you have that presumption. So there is a bit of online, but then it gets a bit more gray because online doesn't mean that you have established yourself in all the areas. It just means that they can access it. So you can start to expand it, but it is still it is limited and it still creates a lot of headaches. Um, <clears throat> if... Um, let's talk international trademark okay is canada considered international to the united states everything outside of the united states is considered international to okay the united states. okay because right now we're crossing borders you know a lot of companies are crossing borders to the united states i mean to canada quite a bit and not exactly. even thinking about this you know so those are things that you know my users need to be you know keeping in mind is the fact that yeah, it's easy to connect with somebody in Canada or even Europe, you know, England and stuff like that. It's easy to connect with them and be mm -hmm. doing business with them, but your brand's not your brand is not protected there. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a very good point. And a couple of things where it comes up, you know, and I'll, I'll give a couple of guidelines is, you know, people are saying, well, I want to go make this in China. Labor in China is cheaper. I want to do manufacturing in China. If you go into China, you're not protected for in China if they want to knock it off. Now, right. one thing you have to consider is, is does it matter if China knocks it off? Because you still have, even if they import it, if it's made in China, but they import it and sell it in the U.S., you still have protection. Anything that's made, sold, manufactured, uh, otherwise offered for sale in the U.S., doesn't matter where it comes from if it's sold in the U.S. So 
if you're if your market size is like, oh, my market is 90 percent the U.S. That's really where I care about. And yeah, there's a couple people in Canada, a couple people in Europe that, you know, they may buy it. But if, if they're to knock it off, I don't care because my market's really in the U.S., then I wouldn't worry about foreign stuff. But to your point, if now you're saying, no, you know, we maybe have, you know, 30 percent of our clients are in the U.S., 20 percent in Canada. 30% in Europe and whatever percentage it breaks down, then you are going to have to say, depending on where your revenues are coming and where your customer base is, you'd have to get different protection in each of those countries. And it's a fairly similar process, but whether it's a patent or a trademark or copyright, you do have, it is country specific as far as your, your limitation or, or what you're able to cover. Hmm. Okay. All right. Wow. It's a lot to stay, it's a lot to, you know, stay on top of, you know, so how do you, if you're not able to afford it in the beginning, how do you know when you should start thinking about getting your, your, your patent or your trademark or copyright? You know, is it when you start growing and getting more business or what? So I'll give you a kind of two guidelines. One is, you know, and this is a bias answer, but there are other terms that a lot of or myself and other attorneys, you can go and sit and do a free consultation. We do free strategy meetings where you can sit down and say, here's kind of what I'm doing. What should I be thinking about and what timeline should I be thinking about? And if it's a good, you know, some attorney will say, you have to pay me now and I'll make sure. But if it's a good attorney, they'll actually, you know, give you the honest answer, sit down and walk through. So that's where if I, I would look for and start because they're going to give you a better answer and a better timeline. Aside from just going and asking an attorney, which I still would strongly recommend, the other thing that I would consider is, depends on what it is. So patents, I'll give as one exception. For patents, if you are inventing something new or creating something new, once you put it out in the public, so you can put it on a website, you can do a trade show, you can you know go and start selling it, pre-selling it, whatever it is, anytime it hits a public, you have a one-year time clock that starts ticking from the very first time you put it down in the public that you can get a patent on it. If you miss a one-year time or time window, you just donated your invention to the public, meaning anybody can do it. And so one thing to consider on the patent side, and it is patent specific, is what it, you need to be careful and keep be aware of that or that time frame because I'll have clients that come to the office and say, you know, I finally got around to getting this. I, you know, I built a great business and we're selling thousands of units or hundreds of thousands of units. And you know, I haven't got around to it, but now I'd like to go get a patent on it. And usually that kind of starts to set off a red flag of. Well, if you sold that many units, you're, so then I, you know, you may have a problem. So I usually ask, so just curious, you know, how long have you been out in the marketplace? And they'll say, oh yeah, we've been out for about three or four years. And, you know, we, we finally started to get some traction. And then it's kind of the less than fun conversation saying, that is great that you have a business that's growing and it's, it's doing well and I'm excited for you. However, I'm not going to be able to help you with the patent because you missed your one-year window. So that's kind of one thing that's patent specific. If I were to step back and say, it's a very general rule, if I'm starting a business, once I get to a point that I'm saying, if somebody were to knock off X, and it can be my invention, it can be my trademark, it can be my copyright, whatever it is, if it gets to the point of I'm saying, if they do this, and it has that ouch factor kind of, hey, that's going to hurt my business. So if they start copying my brand, if I'm small, and they copy my brand, I'll just rebrand and it's not a big deal. But if on the other hand, if they knock off my brand saying, well, we spend $100,000 in marketing a year, and this is really going to hurt us, because now we've got a competitor that's using the same or similar brand. Kind of when you're getting to that ouch factor where it's going to hurt if somebody starts to do what you're doing, you should start protecting it at that point or when you reach it, that's going to matter. So that's kind of a general rule, general kind of guideline as far as how I would start to approach it. Okay. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I didn't know about the one year after, you know, so that's, that's really interesting. That's it. Okay. 
So if I already have a URL for my business, does that help in the trademark process? Nope. I didn't think so. It's completely <laughs> so different, this, right? Yeah. And I, where it usually comes up is people think of one of two things, either, hey, I bought the or domain name, so I've got the trademark, right? Or they'll say, I've registered my business with the state, and so therefore I've got rights to use that name. They, those are each separate things. You can have a trademark for the or for a for a word or for you know for your company name and not have the URL. You still own the rights to that. So if you go buy or somebody else goes and buys the URL, they can come and make you take it down because you're infringing their trademark. If you go register with state, they're registering it with the state. Your business does they don't go and look and see if there's any trademarks out there that's going to create an issue. They just say, hey, do we have anything in our system that's going to make it difficult for us to basically account for or otherwise send out tax notices and register the business? And they're going to look at it from that perspective. So URL and domain or URL domain name or state registration don't give you any protection from the trademark perspective and vice versa. Just because you have a trademark, you typically you're going to want to see if that domain is open because if somebody owns that domain, and they're using it and they're using it for different goods and services, not something you're doing, but they still have the domain. You can't, you know, you can't go take that domain away from somebody. And that's kind of where I talk with a lot of clients. They get aggravated. They're saying, well, I've got this great brand I've been building and I went to, you know, I want to go make a website now and I want to establish it, but somebody else owns it. And even worse, you know, somebody else owns it and they don't even have a website. Can I go make them, give them to me? And I basically say, it's just like any other property. They purchased it first, as long as they're not infringing your trademark, they own it and you can't force them to sell it to you. So those are kind of the things you should be looking at those all at the same time, but they offer different protections. Now, is there a workaround by redirecting, redirecting your URL? Um, I mean, if you're the only way you can redirect a URL is if you own the URL in the first place, right? So somebody else owns a URL, you're not able to redirect from somebody else's URL to yours. So that in that sense, you're going to have to buy the URL that you want to use, and you're not if you're re, if you own both URLs and you're redirecting, that's certainly legal. If you want to have a brand name and a URL that directs to a different site that has better SEO or been established longer, that's fine. It doesn't it doesn't impact trademarks one way or the other. Okay. Okay. Cool. So, um, what is an LLC, and why do I need it? Yeah. LLC, and you also hear S-Corp, C-Corp, and I would say they all kind of fall into the umbrella of business formation. So I'll give the specific or more broader answer why you need to form a business, and then LLC we can talk a little bit about. When you're forming a business, and that is the first thing, if I were to recommend nothing else and nobody else has any takeaways, if you're starting a company, form a business around it. Do an LLC, they're cheap and less expensive, but do one of them. And the main reason being is if you ever... When, if you don't have an LLC, if you don't have a business formed around it and you start doing a business and somebody comes along and they sue you, and that could be anything from you and friends or patents or trademarks or copyrights, you can have product liability, somebody gets hurt using your product, you, you know, somebody thinks that you breached a contract, whatever it is, if you don't have the business formed and you're just doing it as, a, as an individual, they now can come after your house, they can come after your life savings, they can come after anything you own to get recoup for damages for, for whatever they're suing you for. If you have a LLC or a business formation, then you have a layer of buffer. They can come after the business. They can come after the assets of the business, what you formed and the and what the business owns, but they can't come after you personally. So that's the biggest reason why I would get an, a, a business formed is so that you can protect at least your personal assets. So you're not putting your house on the line. You're not putting your life savings, your retirement, or anything of that nature. And the most that they can do is come after the business. 
the, now getting into the question of you, you know, whether you do an LLC, an S corp, or a C corp. LLC or S corps or C corps are generally, if you're going to go after and venture capital, angel investors or other types of investors, S corps or C corps allow you to do shares. And so a lot of times when you hear, hey, I want to buy so many shares of a company, that's with an S corp or C corp. And so if you're specifically forming your business with the intent of going and getting investor dollars, do an S corp or C corp. LLC is basically opposite. It's you give away equity. And so if you're saying, hey, somebody wants to buy equity in your business or be a partial owner, they have equity. And so a lot of times you're going to do an LLC if, if you're not going to raise their venture, you know, do venture capital, angel investors, get other investors. And the other one is LLCs are less expensive to file. They're less expensive to maintain. They're, they're less maintenance. And so typically if I'm starting a business, I would start it unless I'm specifically setting it up to go get investors in the business. I would do it as an LLC because it's less expensive and easier to maintain. Now you can switch from an LLC, right? Yep. Yeah. Takes a little bit of paperwork, takes a little bit of time. Preferably, I'd probably have an attorney do it just because it isn't quite as straightforward. But if you start as an LLC and you grow and you're saying either for tax reasons or for, um, you know, for investor reasons, you want to switch, you can always switch later on. Okay. If I have an employee or, or even a subcontractor, okay, mm-hmm. that I have create either my content or something like that, um, or even helping with the patent, you know, with the design, you know, and everything. Is that mine? Is that my IP or do I have to? Is it the creators? So if you have it in a contract in an agreement with them that you own it, then it's generally yours. But if if all you do is say, hey, I'm going to go and hire an independent contractor, and that's usually where it comes up as, hey, I got an independent contractor. I just need them to do a one-off project or I need them for a short period of time. I don't want them on payroll and to pay benefits and whatnot. So I'm going to hire an independent contractor. And people say, well, I paid them for it. I've got to own it, right? And the short answer is usually not. For most states, if you are paying them for it, but you don't have an agreement in place that says, hey, if I pay you for it, I you now have a duty to sign it over to me. I own everything you create. If you don't have that in place, the independent contractor generally owns it, and then you have the right to use it. In other words, yes, you paid for it, so they have to deliver it, but the contractor can keep using it themselves. They can go sell to other people, and they're the actual owner of it. You have more similar to a license to it. And so generally, if you're going to, and same, it's very similar applies to employees. Employees are, have a little bit better layer of protection, but generally in an independent contractor or a situation or an employee situation, you're going to want to have a clause that says anything that you create that I pay you for or that you do with my, you know, using our resources or our time or our training, we own because we're paying you for it. And you want to make sure that's either an employee agreement or if it's an employee or an independent an independent contractor agreement if it's an independent contractor because you don't have it in place, then you run a high risk that you don't own the things that you think you own and it can open your, open your business up to much easier to um, having a competitor come along. And I think this is extremely important for small business owners who are using uh, many consultants in the gig economy, you know, such as Fiverr and, and Upworks and things like that, if they are producing video for you or, or script content or something like that, you want to make sure that you're clarifying with them that that's your property once you've paid for it. Um, yeah, and, and when you clarify, don't just tell them, you know, vocally, tell them over the phone because 
general adages, if it's not in writing, it never happened. In other words, get it in writing and make sure it's done properly because otherwise, if you just say, hey, just so you know, I own this. And they say, oh yeah, sure, sure, no no problem. They, somebody forgets or later on they say, well, I remember it differently. So make sure to get it in writing. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Okay, all right. Well, that is important. Um, let's see. Uh, what do investors look like, uh, look for? In, in business when it comes to patents and copyright and things like that. Yeah. And I, and I, and I'll give the caveat, you know, different investors always have a different, you know, different things they look for. So this is a, you know, general advice that what do most of them look for? Right. So investors, you know, I'll, I'll answer the question, what do they generally look for? And then get us a, a little bit more specific to intellectual property. I mean, investors, there's two different, generally two different types of investors. One is called an angel investor. The other one is venture capital. Now, I understand there are other ones out there, but those are usually the two biggest. Mm-hmm. Angel investors are some somebody that is willing to take more risk and invest earlier on. So they don't always you don't always have to have a cool business or be profitable. And they're saying, hey, I'm, there's a better or a higher risk, but a higher reward. So I'm going to invest in this earlier because I think it has a lot of potential. Venture capitalists are usually most of the time more looking for businesses that are established and they're saying, hey, now if we invest in the business that's already up and going and profitable, it will, you know, 10x that business or 100x that business and it will make it much bigger. And our investment will kind of add that fuel to the fire type of a thing. So with those in mind, you know, if you're looking, first of all, know which type of investor you're going to because they're going to be looking for a little bit different things. But generally, they're going to one, they're going to be looking for you have a good idea. If you don't have a good idea, they don't want to invest. But then two, they're going to say, okay, do you have a good team around it? And a lot of times a team can make a, di- a big difference because you can have a great idea. And if they don't have the faith that your team is going to be yeah. able to execute, they're going to say, I'm not going to invest in that. Even if you have a great idea, it's never going to make it to market right. and vice versa. You can have a mediocre idea, but you have a stellar team and you can say, hey, we have the experience, we have the background, we have a plan. And they're going to say, okay, I'll, I'll you know, more likely to invest in it. The last thing that the investors, and this kind of is where it gets into intellectual property, is you're also going to be looking for a plan. Now, doesn't mean you have to have the 50-page business plan and every little detail because they're not going to want to read it. But they are going to want to have a plan that, hey, we've thought about, hey, what is our pricing? What, how are we going to go to market? How are we going to sell this? Who are we going to sell it to? You know, what is our demographic? And they're also going to say, if there's anything, what is different or proprietary about your business? In other words, what makes you different? Why Why isn't there, why uh, out of all the people already out there that are doing something similar to this, what makes you unique and what's proprietary about you? Right. And then once you answer that question, it's going to be, now, how do you protect that? In other words, you know, if, it, if it's something proprietary about you, but everybody else can do it the same, exact same as you, then they're going to see your business model. And all of a sudden they're going to say, that is a great idea. I'm going to go start my own business and I'll just charge, you know, 10% less than them and I'll undercut them on price. And so that's why a lot of times if they're investing in a business, they're going to want to know what's proprietary and how you're going to protect it. And that's where intellectual property comes in. So if you're really early on, sometimes the answer is, hey, we know here's what's proprietary about us. We've already looked into it. We know we need to get patents or trademarks. And this is the work that we've done to get ready for that. And what we need as part of your investment is to protect that. That's, you know, the best answer is it's already protected. But if you're saying we don't have the funds and you're saying at least show that you've done your homework such that they know that you thought it through, you have a plan, and that's part of what the money they're investing is going to protect. And so that one, that's kind of how you're going to start to approach it. And, th- and that's pretty much what I tell my clients when I'm talking to them. You know, if you're putting a pitch together for an investor or whatever, you know, you've got to keep in mind, you know, what are their expectations? What are yeah. their expectations? You know, is it a return? Is it, you know, 
And then the other thing is, is you've got to be able to show them that you've thought of everything that could go wrong and have a mitigation strategy in place for it. Yep. No, I I completely agree. And I mean, now they're going to understand it's hard to think of every possibility of, you know, could people think of COVID was going to go wrong before it hit? Probably not. But they want to, but they do want to see that you've thought through reasonable eventualities. In other words, hey, what if, you know, it takes longer to develop than you think it's going to develop? Or what happens right. if it, you know, you, you know, it costs more? Or what happens if you don't, you know, your sales, you're not hitting the right demographic? Or how are you going to figure out your customer acquisition costs? And at least they want you to have the confidence that you've thought through and you figure these things out such that you know what you're doing and there's a right. better likelihood of success. If every time they ask a question, you say, well, that's a good question. I'll get back to you. If you have that once or twice, they're probably going to understand that you're not going to have every answer. But if every answer is, that's a good question, let me get back to you, then they're going to say, this isn't mature enough. Okay, okay. So any last words of wisdom you can give our audience? Yeah, it's probably a bit of reiteration of what we've talked on, but the biggest thing I would do is get a plan in place. Now, I'll also caveat with it. I am yet to see a business that the original plan is the same as what the business actually turns out with. You're always going to pivot. You're always going to adjust. But I think can or when you're early on and you're trying to get a business up and going, you should get a plan in place such that you're convincing yourself that this is a viable idea. In other words, hey, I've thought through before I go and spend years of my life and get investor dollars and or do it myself and sweat equity and everything else. I know that there's a market for it. I can understand that there's that people are willing to pay for it. I understand how I'm going to get it to market. I'm going to understand how I'm going to develop it. And getting that plan in place, if nothing else, to convince yourself that it's a worthwhile investment of your time and effort, I think is the biggest thing that people oftentimes get too excited about the idea and jump right over that and get going and then spend a year or two of their life. And then they find out that there is no market for it or nobody's going to pay what it's going to cost them to make. And so doing that homework on the front end, I think avoids more issues than anything else. And it avoids the costs as well. Yeah. So how can people get a hold of you should they want to? Yeah. So Couple of ways that people want to get reach out to me. If they want to do, and as I mentioned a little bit earlier, we do strategy meetings. If they want to grab some time with me, we do 15 minutes, no obligation, no cost. Just really want to sit down with the startup, make sure they're taken care of. They can go to strategymeeting.com. That links right to my calendar and they can grab some time on my calendar to chat with me. The other one is if they want to just find out more about the web or the firm, my business, the you know, law firm, what are our prices, what are our costs. We also have a ton of videos and blogs and other content that they can learn a ton of things even before talking with us. They can go to lawwithmiller.com. So if they want to uh, reach out to me directly, grab some time on my calendar, do a strategy meeting, strategymeeting.com. They want to reach out to us and just check us out more, go to lawwithmiller.com. Very good. Thank you, Devin. So that concludes our podcast for today. So please leave a review on any of the streaming platforms you are currently listening to us on or go to our Charged Up Studio Facebook page and leave a review there. Charged Up Studio is a product of Marketatomy Academy, the e-learning system designed specifically with the micro business owner in mind. For more information and to register for our many courses, go to marketatomy.academy. I look forward to talking more with you next week when our guest will talk about moving the needle forward by taking your foot off the brake and putting it on the gas. Talk to you then and go out and have a charged up week. Thank you, Devin. Thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. No, definitely. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.